Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on achieving diversity and inclusion in oncology clinical trials from the 2022 Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Andy Lee. I work at Merck and I'm responsible for the late stage uh, clinical development program. We run um, about 300 late stage clinical trials. Um, And in the last two years, we've experienced major disruption in our ecosystem, largely driven by COVID, but more recently by the um, war in Central and Eastern Europe and the impact that will have on our trials. Uh, In that time, we locked 600 databases with none missed, and that requires immense operational excellence. This morning, you would have heard from a few of our plenary uh, lecturers and opening addresses about newer products. Um, You see things like the HIF2 Alpha product that um, uh, was chosen as a a Nobel Prize for its innovation. And that was wonderful to see Greg Semenza recognized for that work. But he did talk about a HIF2 Alpha that um, was actually commercialized. And that was one called Belzutafan by Peloton, which was acquired by our company, Merck. And I mention this because most of the data you saw was sort of preclinical and early clinical data. And what my group and many of our colleagues are responsible for are the sharp end and late stage filing products. And in that regard, the basic science counts a lot, but it doesn't count everything. What really counts is do you have a fileable product that represents the population at large And can you get this approved and and then marketed? And for that, it's really, really difficult to do that work. COVID taught us a lot about the social determinants of health. Never before has this been highlighted um, like COVID. And for us in a company that was developing therapeutics and vaccines in COVID, we really had to lift our game. And it was difficult, challenging, and we were underprepared for that. And I don't think anyone has cracked this nut yet. And it's really, really important for us to focus on this topic. James Gully um, mentioned this morning the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in our trials. Chairing our session today on this very topic is Adrelia Allen. I've known Adrelia for almost a decade, and she's been a champion of diversity and inclusion in our clinical trials at Merck. She has done tremendous work in HIV, where we recruited more female patients than any program in the history of HIV development, more African-Americans in that program than historically done. She has worked in hepatitis C and in prostate cancer, where we've increased our diversity incredibly. And through the strategies and tactics she's employed, in 2021, we, recruit, we screened more than 50% of the US patients as non-Caucasian. So that's a dramatic shift for us. And I stress it was screened. To convert screening into randomization is not easy. And so we have a lot of unfinished work to do in that area. We have had collaborations with many academic institutes and many historically black colleges and universities to change the landscape. 
We are far from solving this. And that is exactly why we're having this panel. We have had requests from the FDA to show our diversity plan so that we can cover underrepresented groups, and this is work in progress for us to make sure that as early as phase one, we're addressing the underrepresented groups and to see if there's any pharmacological and biological differences that we can um, either divert and change our tactics or we can um, continue having that question answered early on in development. And I think the other thing that we've also seen come into play is data monitoring committees at interim analyses are now commenting on the ethnic, racial, and representation in our clinical trials at very early stages. And we've had critique from them that we do not have enough African Americans, Hispanics particularly, in our trials. And this has to change. It absolutely has to change. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Adrelia to address this first topic of uh, underrepresentation in our trials and about diversity, inclusion, and they may touch on equity. So Adrelia, over to you. And thank you, Andy, for that introduction into our topic today. And before we get started, I really did want to highlight, you know, for many of us, we know that clinical research is at the heart of how we bring new medicines to people and to the patients who are suffering. And we really recognize that there's not enough representation for African Americans, Hispanic patients, Native Americans for these diseases and the new drugs that we're bringing to the market, which requires us to do better. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've understood that we can no longer just talk about what we're going to do to have more inclusive practices and research and how we're going to expand the patients that participate in clinical trials. But we're really at a point where we must and we have to do better and bring action to the table. So for our panel discussion today, we have a very diverse group of thought leaders that's going to really push us to the, you know, the text and really requiring us to hear what can I do in my space. So in this space for moving the needle for clinical trial diversity, it's not going to be one company or one organization or one investigator that's going to make the difference. This difference is going to be required about all of us working together to solve for the multifaceted solutions that are required to address this issue. So this is a champion for all of us to take on. And as you listen today, I hope that you can identify some strategies, some tactics that you can take back to your place of work and implement those and even bring on some additional champions to move this forward so that we can improve. And not this will become a thing of the past where we're talking about the lack of diversity and really moving on to addressing diversity and challenging some of these more scientific issues that we have before us. So to kick off our discussion, I'm going to ask each of our panelists to give a brief introduction of who they are and their connection to clinical trial diversity. Hi, my name is Michelle Reed. I am the, from GSK. I'm responsible for our global demographics and diversity team at GSK. We are 
charged with ensuring the representation and the inclusion of uh, all diverse members across sex, gender, race, ethnicity, age, and even pregnancy. Thank you. Karen? Hi, my name is Karen Peterson. I'm a stage four triple negative breast cancer survivor. I'm in my fifth year of survivorship. Yay, yay. Thank you so much. Um, my relationship to clinical trials and diversity is very personal because a clinical trial saved my life, but I had to go through a lot to get there. And so I've wanted to pay it forward with my good fortune, and I formed a nonprofit called Karen's Club where we support, educate, and inform patients of color around clinical trials, all clinical trials, because it wasn't a breast cancer clinical trial specifically that saved my life. It was a trial that was open, and they invited triple negative in. So I think it's really important. This is a wonderful panel. Thank you, Conference Forum, for inviting me, and uh, let's get it started and rocking. Uh, thank you, Karen, and thank you for um, making me a part of this panel. Uh, I'm Chetna Rao, and I head the site strategy and operations. Um, and my role is a little different from uh, the people here. Uh, you know, at, at BMS, we are a lot about clinical trial diversity, which I strongly support. But, you know, my focus is more on building the workforce in terms of how can we bring diversity into the workforce, be it physicians, be it scientists, be it clinicians. So that's what my role is, and I'm trying very hard uh, to make that happen and hope, you know, that'll change the landscape in 10 years from now. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Vonderheide. I'm the director of the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm vice president and vice dean of cancer programs in the school and the, and the health system. Uh, the Abramson Cancer Center is one of the NCI's uh, designated comprehensive cancer centers based out of Philadelphia. We see, in addition to a large research program, we see about 14,000 new patients a year in the region, both adults and, and kids. And as part of taking care of those patients, clinical trials are a mission-critical priority for us. We enroll about 8,000 to 10,000 subjects and patients on clinical trials per year across around 350 open protocols. The clinical trials are a priority for every patient. And over the last five years, we've made um, inclusion and uh, equitable enrollment on clinical trials a high priority and have had an initiative that we're now seeing the results of that I'd be happy uh, to talk about a little bit later. And thank you to our panelists for your introduction. And we're going to begin our discussion and hearing from Karen so that we can hear from the patient's perspective on some of the challenges that are incurred experience for racial and ethnic patients as they try to participate in clinical trials. So let's get the conversation started about patients and challenges and what we face every day when we're trying to access quality health care and make informed decisions. Because it's really about making informed decisions. Um, you know, it's, it's important to have um, support. And in, at the end of the day, it's also important to have education. So I would think when I talk to the patients um, in Karen's Club, and when I talk to patients in the community, the lack of trust and the lack of um, basic um, health literacy and education when it, in regards to clinical trials is huge. 
It's scary. Um, there's no playbook for it. There's no rule book for it. And it's so important to have the conversation about clinical trials with patients, but to be able to do so in a way in which we understand, in the way in which we can actually comprehend what's actually happening. And in addition to that, having access to biomarkers. I had a conversation with someone the other day. Um, they are a, a young person who's in data and they work for a genomics company. And I checked in with them, they were checking in with me, and they said, hey Karen, it's great to see you. You know, since 2018, you've been doing really well. And uh, you know Medicare has been uh, across the board paying for um, genomic testing for patients. You know, with advanced cancers, as a biomarker, it's very important when you're trying to get into a clinical trial. But we notice with our data that across the board, Medicare is paying for it for advanced cancer. But patients of color, since 2018, are lacking in this access, meaning their numbers with this particular company went down. And I was astounded. I'm like, say this again? What do you? And they're like, Karen, we'll get back to you. We don't really understand what the problem is. But across the board, Medicare is paying for it, but there are less African Americans, there are less Latinos getting access to genomic testing, which is critical when you're trying to get into a clinical trial. You can't just wake up and go, mm, today I want to get into a clinical trial. It's, it's science. You have to trust the science. And in order to be able, in order for our community, my community, to make an informed choice, we have to have access to these tools. It's very important. So it was very disheartening to hear that. Moving forward, in addition to access to tools that help us make informed decisions, it's all about literacy. Break it down to us. Don't make science so frightening. It's not, it's just about behavior. Instead of talking at us, talk to us. We get a pathology report in front of us and we're scared to death. We can't understand the jargon. We don't know what it means. We're emotional, we're trying to make a decision and we're under pressure and we need your help in order to be able to make an informed decision and to be able to do that in a timely fashion. Help us become health literate. Partner with those grassroots organizations that are doing the work, that have those initiatives. I read an article the other day and I was shocked. It says the FDA, there was a March issue of, in the Health Affairs magazine that black patients are still underrepresented in most trials relating to the approval of new drugs despite implementation of an action plan in 2015 to improve diversity. This info was based off the FDA drug trial snapshot website. There was no evidence that in the five years that the program had been in place that black representation improved. Now I'm gonna let y'all sit there with that for a moment. Are you surprised? Yes, I am, because it's an initiative. It's about behavior. We all think this is about science, but sometimes it's just about behavior. Sometimes it's just about getting behind what the initiative is and saying, you know what? Let me reach out to one of those safety care network clinics because I'm at a teaching institution. Let me reach out to some <clears throat> patients there. I'm doing a trial on prostate cancer, and I know blacks lead in those areas of deaths. Breast cancer, we are 41% more likely to die from that than a Caucasian woman. Why not reach out to one of those small clinics and have a conversation with a doctor who may not be privy to the clinical trial that you're running? 
don't let it be about competition. It's not just about science. It's sometimes just about simple behavior. Just a little change, because we know that this, it, the system, we've heard that it's broken. We've, I've got the article here in my hand. But what I'm saying to you is, you can make little small steps in order to change things. Just little behaviors and mentioning clinical trials earlier in the conversation, especially when it comes to advanced cancer. Don't wait. It's just another tool in the box. Have the conversation, lay it out. Whether we choose or not to participate, it's up to us. But don't leave it out of the, the you know, the orientation. Don't leave it out of the toolbox. It's just some of those things. And trust. Lastly, we can talk about that all day, all day, all day. But I think we, we're here because we want to be solutions driven. We all know what happened. Everybody in this room knows the historical context. But we don't have to be a part of that. Everybody in this room, I can see it in each and every one of your eyes. You want to make a change. You're not here today because you got nothing better to do. You're here because you want to make a change. And how do you do that? It's by behavior. It's by really investing in the community that you may not be a part of. Don't be afraid. We want, we thirst for information. We want to make informed decisions. Come meet us. Come meet us where we're at. Come talk to us. Pair up with those community-based organizations like Touch BBCA. They're having a wonderful initiative in regards to clinical trials in black breast cancer, the Mesostatic Breast Cancer Alliance. Partner up with them. Partner up with Karen's Club. There are lots of organizations out there you can get involved with. Go to your local school. Start talking to the kids about science. Start talking about clinical trials. Go to your churches. These are the things that we face. We face access to you guys. We face access to the information. And Karen, can I, it's a good segue for us to introduce and have Rob to kind of share what the work that has been done at Abramson Cancer Center and how they were changing their behaviors and really implementing new tactics and strategies to engage and have a bi-directional communication with the black community. So Rob, can you share please? Well, thanks, and thanks to Karen. I mean, it's very inspiring to, to hear your words, and um, the, the data that uh, we look at across the country suggests that um, if we focus for a moment on um, black patients, that their representation in our clinical trials across the country is actually getting worse over time. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, we looked at our experience at the Abramson Cancer Center going back to 2014, and we did this in partnership with our Associate Director of Outreach and Diversity, who is Carmen Guerra. Some of you may, may know her. And we found that um, although within the 12-county catchment area that we serve, um, the, the um, population uh, included 19% um, black individuals, and within those counties, 16% of the cancer cases are black patients. We were enrolling onto all types of clinical trials, about half that, 8 to 11%, and that was unacceptable. And I'll tell you about our experience, um, um, a three-pronged experience over the last five years, but we reassessed our, our data, and now our um, enrollment in cancer clinical trials, all types of trials, has doubled. So I think um, the experience we had is suggestive that this problem can be addressed. We have a long way to go. What did we do? We had a three-pronged approach. The first was provider-facing, education around this issue, 
Um, believe it or not, there is one report that up to 30 to 40 percent of cancer clinical trials have been reported without demographic data. It has to be a priority. And we talked and, and, and implemented a number of protocol management changes around um, inclusion of, of black patients. The second phase was patient-facing, interacting with new patients of color who were diagnosed with cancer in a, in a navigation system to educate and talk about opportunities in clinical trials. The other initiative was community-facing. Um, it, it was not sufficient to stay within the walls of our cancer center and hope the problem was going to change. And Carmen led an incredible effort to outreach. And we focused on West Philadelphia, where a lot of our patients come from. That community is actually 43% black. And we made partnerships with churches and other faith-based organizations. We started holding educational seminars in local hotels. We took out ads and information in local newspapers. You know those newspapers you see at the grocery store? Those are really highly read in neighborhoods. And we changed our marketing strategy. For the Cancer Center, we started showing people of color in our ads, a point that we were able to make to pharmaceutical companies. And this was a bi-directional, intentional effort to develop trust that, yes, if you live in West Philadelphia, you have every right to have access to the Abramson Cancer Center, and you're welcome. And um, we estimate that we've reached about 15,000 individuals over the course of this multi-year effort, and, um, and happy to go into further details. Um, but it was those three things, community-facing, patient-facing, provider-facing. We don't know which one was the most important one. It, was, it wasn't designed like that. Um, this was a all-hands-on-deck, let, let's, let's just start solving the problem. So that, um, that has been a, a learning experience for us. And as we're talking about this, so we've heard from the patient, we've heard from <clears throat> our treatment institutions on how, you know, what are the areas that we need to focus on. And I think right next is learning from an industry standpoint, how do we build in and take these, this feedback and include it within our protocol design, our site selection, and then how we report out from that data. So I'm gonna ask if Michelle would just share with us from the work that you're doing, how can we bring all of that information and really have some outcomes and positive outcomes in enrolling diverse patients in our clinical trial? Well, so, so the, the data is at the core. Um, and a lot of institutions, I'll, I'll, I'm thinking of the Satcher Institute out of Morehouse, uh, ha, is very loud about saying that the data that we collect on non-white patients is very unreliable. Um, the collection of that is spotty, just like you, you were saying earlier, of people just not knowing or not being available or, or not hearing about it or just not being paid attention to. So, I mean, Karen said earlier, this the system is broken and at risk of sounding extremely politically progressive, which are, I think our roles tend to lean in that direction, this, the system is not broken. It's designed to act this way. And the, the whole point of diversity, equity, and inclusion, somebody added an, a new letter in an article I read recently, which was belonging. So DEIB, I'm not prepared for that exactly, but the sentiment is true that I, a lot of our patients don't belong in the process yet. And so 
I say the whole point about broken versus as designed because the task is to change the system that is already working well for who it was designed for into one that works better for everybody. It's a little bit different of a task. So from the data point of view, it is a cycle, and this is what I'm responsible for at GSK, is making sure that we break the cycle because somebody like Karen, for example, if you don't know about a study, that's one thing. If you are not referred into a study, that's another thing. If Now all of that, if you don't have a trusting relationship with the healthcare system, that's the third thing. If the doctors who are trying to prescribe medication to you don't have solid data for somebody that is like you, that's another thing. So what can I do in a sponsor company, a GSK or so on, is to make sure that we can at least break that cycle somewhere. And that's where if we can make sure the representation figures are specified. I'm surprised to learn that actually all of us in industry are actually quite good at recruiting. Like you were saying earlier, you know, you're now recruiting very high numbers of ethnic patients. And so from a recruiting point of view, if we set the targets, we can get there. Mm -hmm. We've shown that in HIV. For in HIV, it's so disparate. We have 50% of new diagno newly diagnosed patients are black in the US. And now between Merck and Vive and Gilead, they're showing that you can get these patients mm -hmm. if you try. So that's breaking the old rule, right? So now the job is to set that. And then we can get along. So it's the reporting part after we get the data so that everyone understands. I mean, that's, that's the trusting part. Right, so I think we've kind of heard some of the challenges and how we're addressing that. I think there's another area that we do have to address and you know we've heard from patients that when they hear about clinical trial information they really would like to hear it from someone that looks like them so we also have another challenge with who are the you know the black doctors the hispanic doctors the native american scientists where are they and how do we tap into those individuals when we are, from an industry perspective, looking to recruit a trial. And so Chetna has a unique um, story to share from um, BMS so that we can also look in other areas of how we can make improvements to DNI and clinical research. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, I agree with everything that you guys are saying. Um, you know, one of the things, Karen, which I think is very important, and you know, we're doing a lot about that, is patient access, and not just patient access, but you know, also the cost of drugs. You know, people are not talking about the cost of drugs. Uh, for people of color, some of these costs of drugs are enormous. So, how do we help them get access to these drugs? Which becomes very important. Uh, secondly, is you know, you you need to have these advocates, right? As you said, if, if you don't go and talk to the people who are at the high-risk category, you need advocates to go and reach out to them rather than really reaching out to you. If you know there are individuals who are in the high-risk, go talk to them and say, hey, you know what? You're in a high-risk category. Maybe you should think about this. These are the clinical trials that are ongoing. So be proactive rather than be reactive. I think we as a society right now are being very reactive, but I think we have to be proactive so that we don't have this conversation 10 years from now. Things will flow the way they're supposed to. 
Um, one thing which we're doing is, uh, in terms of you know the clinical diversity, uh, BMS has about 250 uh, commun community-oriented uh, uh, research investigators, you know, clinical, who are mo majority of those doctors are either Hispanic or black. As you said, if I walk into a doctor's office and I see somebody who looks like me, I'm more likely to trust that doctor. Because you know this person comes from the same background that I am, so he or she is gonna understand what I'm going through. So I think that becomes important. But what is happening is I don't think the representations of physicians actually mimics what is happening in the real world. We have a lot less physicians who are people of color than compared to what's out in the society. So how can we change that? So to me, I go back to elementary school. How do we ignite the curiosity of science in students all the way from elementary school? If I've gone and to, spoken to students of color and say, oh, you know, you can be a scientist, there is this fear in their face. They are like, oh no, science is too hard, we can't do it. You have to change that attitude. You have to make science fun. And you know, you have to have these touch points, you know, at elementary school, middle school, high school, universities, to keep that curiosity even going further, to get them engaged. Because once you do that, you're gonna build this workforce, which are you know, diverse, they'll come from diverse backgrounds, be it African American, Latinx, Pacific Islanders. Once you get that, you're now gonna have physicians, you're gonna have scientists who look like you, right? Uh, to be a person of color and walk into you know, a research organization where nobody looks like you, the likelihood of you joining that job is pretty slim, I can tell you that. So we want to change that. We want to change that dem demographics. Uh, and the way we can do it is, you know, be it funding, be it mentoring, give your time. You as a scientist, take one hour in a month, go to a school, talk to a student, say, hey, look, I'm a scientist. If I can do it, you can do it. Trust me, it makes a huge difference. We have examples that we've done. Uh, you know, there was a school uh, very close to where we are in California, which is 98% Latinos. Most of these kids didn't speak English. They didn't have a science club. They didn't have a science lab. It was a middle school. We put in some in, uh, funding in there. We started a STEM lab. We started a robotics lab. They're coding right now and making robots. They're having chariot races with robots, and they are super excited. That's what I'm saying is ignite that curiosity. Of course, this was not biology because it was elementary school, so they're not doing biology experiments, but you can do this at middle school, you can do this at high school, you can do this even in undergrad or graduate school. One of the other things which I want to point out is there's a lot of students who are going through the science path up to college and they want to get into med school, right? Do you know how expensive application forms are to med school? And they can't afford to do that. So they don't go to med school just because they cannot apply. So we are supporting organizations. There's one uh, which was started by actually an African-American medical student at UCSF. It's called Bridging Admissions. And they have something called the Hope Fellowship. And we fund that. What that does is it helps the students pay for the application fee, so they pay for the application fee, and they do a one-on-one -on -one mentoring with these students. And the success rate is 73%. Awesome. 73% of the students who are from Latino or black backgrounds have not got accepted into medical schools. So think about this. Five years from now, these are all gonna be doctors, yes. okay? And the beauty about this, when you talk to these students and say, what do you want to do as a doctor? 
almost every single student said, I want to go back to my community. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to my community and help my community. So this is what we want to do, is grow that workforce. And this is not instant gratification, guys. I know we are all into <laughs> Twitter. We instantly want to see it, and it's gone, and we don't think about it the next minute. This is not it. I think each one of us has a responsibility to, to make a change, one student at a time, one physician at a time, one patient at a time. And that's what we need to do to bring this change so that 10 years from now, this world is going to look very different. That's all I have to say. I love that. So thank you for that. I think we've kind of taken this context from a 360 view from the patient and still ending up in with the patient in their community. So I think the next part is really how are we going to engage more? How can we tap into our patients and would love to hear from Karen to kind of share from a clinical research standpoint, how do we include patients in our clinical trials are we do we you know how do we gain access if we have a new trial is are there certain patients we need to hear from trusted voice certain trusted voices how do we get feedback on the trial and making it more community centered and patient centered now that's a very good question. I think that you have to take a step back, and when you're building the trial, you have to bring the patients in, you have to bring the community in because you're servicing the community. So it makes sense to bring their voices in and to really ask them. It's just an honest conversation. What would make this trial viable for you outside of science? Because there are a lot of social economic issues, and again, trust. So having that conversation really builds trust and the fact that you're invested in the community because you're inviting the community in to have a conversation about something you want to do with the community and for the community. So I think bringing them in while you're building the trial makes the most sense because, again, the voice is valuable. The patient voice is very valuable. And a lot of times I've heard from researchers, now this is not something I've made up, that researchers who are actually doing the, the clinical research have oftentimes not experienced what it's like to be in a, a room with a patient and actually go through the process. Right. This is not something I'm making up, that's something I heard. Here's, I'm like, oh, okay, I understand now from your perspective. So again, I think it's really important when you're building and creating a trial to bring these patients in because you're bridging the gap. The researchers are clearly hearing from the community what the needs are. It's as, it's as simple as changing the behavior. That's all, just bring us in and have the conversation. In addition to that, there are so many initiatives out there, again, in regards to clinical trials and inclusion. Find those initiatives in your community. They're there. I've touched BBCA, like I said, the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, Karen's Club. There are so many initiatives. They have an initiative in New York called the Citizen Sciences. Like, get involved. Get involved. The um, you have to have trust in a relationship and a belonging sense, and then that's not sufficient. They're real barriers, mm -hmm. and and I think we, you know, to to not be having this conversation in ten years, we should be honest about what those barriers are. First of all, if a patient does not actually have access to your health system, they will never go on a clinical trial. I mean, what happened simultaneous to us was uh, Medicare expansion. Mm -hmm. that was a big benefit. 
So if you don't have access from the community to the front door of a, of a cancer center, you will not go on a clinical trial, right? And then there's issues of once you're actually a patient getting on the clinical trial. And there's barriers there, too. Why does a patient who lives in North Philadelphia have to take three buses to get through the front door of the Abramson Cancer Center? We've worked on that with a relationship with uh, Ride Health to bring patients in for free. Um, how is that patient going to have frequent visits if they have another job? They have a job. Or who's going to be the babysitter for their kids? There are, there are costs to belonging to a clinical trial. We helped, the, we helped um, the Lazarus Foundation pass a law in Pennsylvania to say that is not inducement to cover those costs. Mm -hmm. It's now law in California and some other place. I think Texas is, is next. Um, and you know, Lazarus is working with many of you to um, get that kind of, that's going to make a big difference. We have a big program on that. Education, what is a clinical trial? Mm -hmm. uh, let's have that conversation. I don't speak English. Maybe I can hear about clinical trials in another language. I mean, there's just a series of barriers that face patients, even once they become your patient, that prevents them going on clinical trials. Yet, they are solvable one by one, if we're serious about it, Karen's point. Chetna, I see you're ready to um, jump in, so please go ahead. No, uh, you know, another thing which I want to uh, bring about is policy changes. Mm -hmm. I think we really need to work with our legislators. Um, you know, because if you don't voice it, they don't hear it. Um, and I think it's important to do that. And you know, you mentioned about, you know, access to clinical trials. And I'm, I'm giving you a classic example is, you know, there are people who have to take five buses, you know, just to get to a clinical trial and or even going to a doctor, and how can we help that? This, this is very, very common uh, in you know, central California, which is pretty, pretty much agricultural communities, and most of them are Latinos, so they have problems going to the doctors, right? So it's important to understand that. The other thing is the education part of it is the science behind it. I know you, know, you talk to them and they have a glazed look, they don't know what they're talking about. Make it simple. You know, um, when I was in my career, uh, you know, my mentor, I still remember that day, he said, if you cannot explain your science to your grandmother, you've lost the battle. And I think that's important, is to really tell them what they're going through, what it is. I mean, you don't have to draw a cell and draw an antibody. You don't have to do that. But use real-life examples to explain what this clinical trial means to them, what it can do to them. Because I think that's important, is to have that language with them. And that's where I think the whole trust with the physician, if the person is of the same color, becomes very important. Because you know, it's like, oh, it's like my son talking to me and telling me you know, what this trial is about. I'm more likely to agree to what he's saying or she's saying, and then get into the trial. So communication, trust, access, I think become extremely, extremely important. Agreed, agreed. Michelle, do you have any? Yeah, in terms of a takeaway, from my point of view, it's the relationship with healthcare. And so we all have different relationships with, with the healthcare system. You know, I can say Karen and I have a different relationship if we go to the same doctor, not just because you look different than me, but you're a woman, I'm a man, that's gonna be a first thing. The intersection of that lays on top of that and so on. So we have to take that into account. So Chetna, you're saying you know, so much distance, physical distance, geographic distance, 
produces a different relationship with the healthcare system. I'm not gonna go see my doctor. I'm not gonna have that preventative relationship. And therefore, I have the lesser relationship than somebody who's closer or more, you know, just more accessible. So that, that whole element of having a different relationship with the healthcare system, I think is where, I, that's what I hear you saying, Robert, in trying to design the, the new system of how we're doing things is taking that into account. Just, and, you know, site of care needs, we need to be um, more broadly interpreting what that means. Um, why do we have to drag a patient in an hour trip to get a CBC done to monitor them on a clinical trial? Could their local lab be okay for that? Um, uh, can we monitor for toxicity with telemedicine? Um, it's the, the notion that you have to come to the big cancer center to have all that work done, I think is restrictive. You know, we, we started doing cancer screening clinical trials and because of COVID, we, we changed the site to one of the church's parking lot. We set up a drive-through clinic where we handed out fit testing cards. Actually found lots of, eventually navigated those patients into colonoscopy and it's pretty shocking that you can, you can save lives by doing that. Um, and um, one thing to keep in mind, I know we're almost out of time, is we haven't talked about the Hispanic community, but there's a very, um, so much. We haven't talked about the fact that they are a very young population. Mm -hmm. So the number of cancer patients that we're seeing, and this is true across the country, who are Hispanic, is actually a lot less as a percentage than the population, because cancer is a disease of aging, largely. And so. You can look at your, your numbers for Hispanic enrollment and be, well, everything's okay. But there are, we have an opportunity to be involved in screening and prevention and lifestyle clinical trials to um, empower that community not to be at the same risk as the other communities um, as they get older. Um, and so we need to be aware when we see that you know, 3% of our patients at Penn are Hispanic, but, you know, 9% of our community is Hispanic. That is a meaningful action item that we can have a, a huge breakthrough by treating, you know, by intervening early and, and lowering risk. Um, and that, of course, is, a, is, is another opportunity for clinical trials as well. Right. So I know we are nearing the end, and we've heard a lot about trust, heard a lot about access, how do we engage the patient, bringing research to the patient. And I would just like to end with just sharing a little bit of my journey in doing this work and having a father who was diagnosed with prostate cancer and with me being involved in the pharmaceutical industry managing clinical trials, it was a challenge to actually get my father to consider participating in a clinical trial based on the historical perspectives. And I know that I'm not isolated or standing alone, but there are many other families that suffer from family members dying from cancer. And when I sit in sitting in the room this morning and hearing about, you know, there was over, I think the number was a 190% increase of oncology clinical trials, and knowing that my family, cancer is the major 
diagnosis and for, many, for me losing many family members. And to know that not even half of my family have been approached to participate in a clinical trial. And then even fewer of them would even consider just because of some of the historical perspectives. So I'm just pleading for you all in your spaces to take some steps further to help us bridge this gap because the scientific genius that we're experiencing now in cancer where the trajectory of patients' lives are being changed is not, should not just be made available for some patients but it should be made available for all patients. And the work that we're doing now in creating equity and leveling the plane and making sure that all patients has access, have access to this is going to help all of us. So as we close, I hope that all of you will join us on this journey and this fight to bridge the gap in clinical trial diversity and bringing the best that we have in medicine to all of our patients. Thank you. All right. Well, before one, we did, we thought we did hear the bell and we did want to be respective of the time, but are there any questions? If you have a question, okay, we have a question here. Come to the mic. Um, hi, I have a, a question based on the industry side. Let's say you've been successful, you've recruited diversity in your trials. How do you handle the data? Is the data then blinded? With respect to, with respect to? With respect to race and ethnicity, when the data comes in, do you then parse it out, or is it all? Oh, it's connected. What? Yes. It's absolutely connected. And, and I'll go so far as to say that uh, we collected that and have been collecting that type of data. It's changed over time. But for every participant, it continues to be blinded. And so there's, there are some very small subpopulation analysis that cannot be done for, for certain reasons for identification purposes. But on aggregate, uh, we, we do collect Today, the CDISC organization mirrors the United States uh, census, so we'll have African-American, Asian, Caucasian, and then the Latino uh, ethnicity, and so on. But we're, we're learning what to do with that data more and more. Yeah, I mean, and, and just one I would like yeah. to add that so we do have access to that data and have capabilities of, as the patient's being enrolled, to see what our demographic data looks like. So we have the opportunity to, you know, enact change, mitigate, so that it's not at the end of the trial and we unblind, we find out that we don't have a diverse patient population. We can see that as we're enrolling. I, I can see patients that were enrolled and randomized as late as yesterday in a dashboard. I mean, the, the reason I ask is if, if you're looking at that sort of data and you're trying to tease out response criteria, you then have to ask yourself genetically what is a group, right? And that's kind of, kind that's of weird. I mean, race-based drug approvals, there's been one and then it was rescinded. 
It's the, the, the view on what a race means or any sort of ethnicity or any population cohorts yeah. is changing. Um, and even the, the nature of labels is changing as we speak to the point of whether we're looking at things from I mean, frankly, the, the, the labels we use a lot and report, if you look at the FDA snapshot, for example, are based on US census, which was based on politics. It had nothing yeah, to do yeah. with science, right? Yeah. So, but that's changing to understand con continental ancestry, whether it matters or not. If you look at something like 23andMe and you see differences with, uh, you know, yes, continental origins, but also Neanderthal and, and so on. We're learning what matters, and causality is a whole different beast compared to correlation, but we're, we're trying to watch for that. Yeah, I mean, just, just one brief uh, aside to that. When the Bidel was, I, I talked to the CEO about the trial. He said, yes, we're trying to get this uh, approval for a sub-analysis of black patients. I go, well, how do you know they're black? He goes, well, they tell us they are. <laughs> okay. okay. What yeah. else can you do? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can do a genomic test, and you can see, like for me, for example, my 23andMe tells me that just under 20% of me comes from sub-Saharan Africa. Does that qualify for your inclusion-exclusion criteria? That's up to whatever we need to, you know, who knows? And the level of ancestry, the, the, the number of uh, generations, it matters, maybe. So we're, I mean, it's all very fluid science at this point. Yeah. Neil, perhaps I could uh, just offer a couple of uh, um, points on that. Uh, in our group, we have a data management group. In clinical trials, we stratify by prognostic markers, by different subgroups. And that subgroup analysis is always looked at. And studies in oncology typically have an independent data monitoring committee that will periodically review the data in an unblinded fashion while the study team remains completely blinded. And they will look at the ethnic breakdown of the trial participants, and they'll look at the stratification factors, amongst other things. We can't measure everything, so some of those are done in post hoc secondary analyses. But the study prospectively is managed by an unblinded data monitoring committee. And if they see lack of efficacy or a safety side effect in a subgroup, they will typically recommend a change in the protocol or a change in, in design elements. And then at the back end, once the trial is completed and submitted to the FDA, that is when the snapshots come out that Karen spoke about. These um, ethnic snapshots will show exactly the makeup of the trial as patient reported. The vast majority of patients report accurately. Some self-select to put other. They don't want to disclose their um, ethnicity um, in, in, in the actual case report form. It's very, very few patients who do that. So I'd say about 99% plus identify correctly with their ethnic identity. But that brings you to Obama, who identifies as black. But genetically, I don't know what 23andMe would say. And if his data, how would you parse that? That's why we run very large randomized clinical trials. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so thank you very much to our panel. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.